It's another episode of the Uptime Punks, and welcome back, everybody, your loyal listeners, your loyal punks. And um, as we're moving further and further deep into the space of net zero and sustainability, we're getting you, of course, more relevant speakers um, by each episode, I would say, Tim. Um, we're getting a little bit closer to the source. Uh, some would say that we're getting closer to the sun. Um, and uh, we're trying to, to get you the answers that you're all seeking for. And um, very grateful to our um, mentor and uh, fellow Uptown Punk, Susanna, for bringing us another very great guest. And um, Michael Terrell from Google. I don't think we must say more than that, is it, Tim? I, I think that's, that's more or less it. Michael Terrell from Google. Have fun, everybody. Enjoy. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Uptime Punks, and um, we're back, of course, with our fellow Uptime Punks, Susanna. Susanna, how are you doing? You all right? Doing well. Thank you, Paul, for asking. How, how is it over there on the other side, uh, the brighter side, now with um, Mr. Biden? Eh? Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, Paul. Thank you very much for your support uh, and your sympathy prior to January 19. And, uh, but yes, things have Jeff definitely take a very positive um, upswing um, since the news administration and specifically you know I follow science um, 52 million doses of vaccine have been administered to the arm which is amazing since I spoke with you just a few weeks ago um, yeah. so um, we are very very excited about the um, the fact that um, we are seeing the light in the darkness um, unfortunately, you know, we had an event yesterday, um, the president held that and uh, we will actually lower our flags for five days in honor for the 500,000 Americans that have fallen uh, to the COVID. We're not over yet, uh, but you know, you know how I am, you know, we follow the science, we stay hopeful and we stay in and, but I, for the first time feel hopeful regarding the community and our all fellow citizens. And then specifically February 20th was an important historical event for us all on the other side of the pond from you, uh, because America is an acted back into the Paris climate agreement. So there you go. So what does this mean for, for what does it mean for you, Susanna? Any news on net zero, carbon free, what's going on over there in the US? Any companies particular which are which are leading from the front? Because, yes. Um in the next step we're gonna come to our guest, which is a very special guest of yours. But um, Yes, Michael is extremely special. He's actually head of energy and he's been in it. Uh, from the very early beginning and done amazing work. So I, I really want the audience to hear directly from him uh, for many things that he have done that I personally learned from him and I personally get inspired. But I would just say on the high level, uh, too soon to tell when somebody is actually genuinely in office about the first month. Um, I don't want to kind of, you know, determine the entire relationship and marriage by the 30 days of the honeymoon. Um, we need to follow science, but so far so in doing good. Uh, we are seeing very positive change, Paul, uh, from a green policy perspective from the administration. And I'm definitely seeing a change of uh, collaboration and approach 
uh, which is actually where Michael comes in. Um, we, he and I really collaborate in a lot of different ways. Um, we're not over yet in terms of what are the, you know, if you stay in ambition, we still need to focus on execution. So um, it, it is good that uh, I also glad to report that since we spoke, um, there is a carbon neutral data center pack um, a group got formed. Um, there's also um, the declaration that's actually formed, which I signed yesterday. Uh, to support uh, basically um, numerous very in, uh, intellectual and talented scientists to really work out to see how we can actually transform uh, our entire community into a zero emission economy. And it is very specific about each point about how it can actually address and get there to tackle climate change. So I'm glad to make all those resources available to you so you can share with the audience. So thank you for having myself today. And, but I really want to, the audience to hear more about Michael from Google. So coming to that, Michael Terrell, welcome from Google. Um, so your official title is Director Energy Markets Development at Google. Um, so Michael, what is exactly that you do at Google in a nutshell? <laughs> yeah, so first of all, thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I lead energy strategy for our data center fleet at Google and our global energy portfolio. And uh, I've been at Google now, it's hard to believe, but this is uh, my 13th year and have been involved in uh, many of our energy activities uh, since since the beginning. And uh uh, but really excited to be part of the team that uh, oversees our global data center energy portfolio and helps set the direction for the future. Oh, it's great to have you here as a guest. But as usual, because everybody knows the uptown punks, we need to get you a little bit warmed up before we throw you in the in the pit to get <laughs> um, all the, squeeze all the answers out of you. Um, so um, one of the one of the first questions we always ask our guests was, "What is your first mobile phone? Do you remember?" So uh, since we talked, uh, uh, we've already mentioned politics, uh, I, I'm going to go back there, which is that my very first job was actually working in the White House in the Clinton administration uh, in the 90s. And back then we had pagers. This was before wow. cell phones were ubiquitous. And I had a Motorola pager that when they needed to summon me late on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning, I would get a page. Um, we eventually were, uh, got uh, Motorola flip phones, and I believe my first phone was, uh, I think, the Motorola MicroTac, which had the, the flip over the keyboard part of the phone. But, uh, but I really got my, my, my connected start by wearing a pager all the time and being summoned to the White House at any hour of any day. Oh, wow. So um, you were really playing the, um, the how, how would you people say? You were really playing it high up there then, yeah? Okay, <laughs> so the pager, like a doctor, yeah? But when the president needs something, the president needs something, and then you have to go run. Yeah, makes sense. Um, is this also your first touch with computers when it was in your career, or was it before that already that you had your first contact with them? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when I was in college, um, we, uh, you know, that's where we sort of first had exposure to computers. First, um, again, I'm Oh, I've been around long enough to where we got email addresses when I was in when I was in college, and there were uh, a few unlucky students who had their own computers back then. They had the, their their own MacBooks, and 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 all of us would mooch off their computers to write our papers and and do our work. But uh, but yeah, it, you know, I really uh, really got my first sort of work computer in the White House, and then my first sort of personal laptop was one of the very very early um, IBM ThinkPads. 
Okay, wow. So when you when somebody looks at your background, they see that you were in touch when it comes to energy and um, these things already quite at an early point. Is it because that's something you feel very passionate about, about energy, the environment and nature? Is it something you would say that's like for you um, a very passionate topic? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been involved in energy and the environment uh, in some form for, for many, many years and for uh, my entire career. And ironically, I actually got my, my, my sort of first exposure to the, to the space um, when, I was, when I was a child. I grew up in, in Alabama and my family actually had a, a, a coal mining company, a, a company that, that stripped mine coal in North Alabama. And I used to literally go to the mines with my grandfather. And, you know, he, if, if I was lucky, he would let me sit on top of one of the 10,000 pound drag line excavators that would excavate overburden above the coal seams um, to, to be able to remove the coal from the ground. So that, that believe it or not, was my, my first exposure to uh, the energy space. And I went on to study geology in college um, got involved uh, in working on these issues in Washington, but have always been involved in in the energy space in some form or another. And 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 I find it quite ironic now that you know I'm, most of my job is now dedicated to finding carbon-free sources of energy, not only for Google but for the world. Um, what do you say? Because you've been around in this field now since what, let's say, close to twenty years. Would you say there's been a lot of pro uh, progress in? more progress in the last five years would you actually let me put my question different would you say in the last five years there was more progress than in the 15 years before yeah or how would you see it from a personal perspective yeah it's a great question and uh it, it you know it's it's really fascinating to see just how fast and how far we have come in the last five years you know i've been on this journey since very early in my career uh, but i will have to say that you know the last five or ten years we've made a much much faster project progress. And I think this is an incredibly exciting time um, to be in the energy space and to be focused on these sort of newer energy sources. And, uh, and technology is moving a lot faster now. We have a whole new set of tools because of technology and because of some of the work we do in the cloud community that we didn't have before. And I think that's incredibly exciting. And I think you're going to see the next 10 years be very different than the last 10 years. And we're going to, and progress is going to move much, much faster. Um, one thing I'm really curious about, I'm sure the listeners as well, as we all experience lockdowns around the world, um, someone like you, Michael, at Google, what was your lockdown gadget? I mean, everybody during lockdown somehow bought himself a gadget to keep himself busy or some sanity. Did you get yourself something as well? It, uh, you know what? I have to say it, it hasn't been an electronic gadgets. It's been a series of fidget spinners because yeah. I found that sitting uh, on uh, video conferences all day long, uh, I get very antsy. And so uh, sitting on my desk, I have a, I have literally half a dozen fidget spinners that I use to sort of keep me occupied while I'm sitting through the, uh, the, the video conferencing calls that I now do every day at work. Uh, it used to be, I could just stand up and walk around a conference room, but, uh, but, but nowadays I'm just uh, fidget spinning, you know, all day long. That, I that love it. That's great. The first, yeah, that's the great. first carbon neutral gadget we had on this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the first carbon. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, okay, I'm going to come to the last question I have for you, which is um, the, the podcast is called the Uptime Punks, right? Uh -huh. And for someone like you, how would you define uptime 
for yourself would, from a personal perspective, but as well from a professional perspective? What is uptime to you? Yeah. So one of the things I love about where we are at Google, and, and we can talk about this, but, uh, you know, we certainly talk about, uh, you know, the need to run our, our um, cloud computing services in a way that's continuous and always available. And, and you know, the, the, the term that everyone uses for that is 24 seven. Um, but we've now recently made a pledge to power our services with carbon-free energy on a 24-7 basis. So what I love now is within Google and within the data center world internally here, when people say 24-7, they really mean two things. They mean, uh, you know, running our services and making them available to customers 24 and our users 24-7. But we now also mean we're going to run our services on carbon-free energy 24-7 too. So, so um, uptime to me means... Uh, two very different things, but two things that are very related and very much important, and very much important to um, the future and to the and to our customers. Yeah, well, the, it is it is a very important thing, especially the carbon-free one. And with coming into this topic, I'm going to hand you over to Susanna and Tim because they have some questions around the carbon-free. <laughs> Susanna, the honor is yours. <laughs> Yes. Hi, Tim. Hi, Paul. That was actually a really great intro. And Michael, I love all your answers. Um, <laughs> I would say for 24-7, I am smiling when actually Michael said that. Uh, you know, having in the, data in, in the data center industry, as you all three know, that I have been, uh, I've been in it for th uh, counting three decades now coming up. Um, we always think 24-7, Michael, don't you think? Uh, in terms of uptime, 24-7, uh, 365, and maintain basically a 5.9, which is 99.999 uptime. And in these days, after we introduced the availability zone, which basically have this new concept that we're never down, right? So um, I, I love it when you were introducing at your keynote last year in Singapore to the entire audience in Asia Pacific, and it was just a really inspirational speech that you gave in terms of you using the 24-7 term to represent carbon-free energy to really measure um, yourself. And I agree with your CEO, this is the first that anybody have um, even set their mind on doing, let alone the ambition and having you lead in charge. Uh, so I know definitely that Google is very, very delighted and, and very, very excited to actually have you leave uh, lead that effort. Um, so perhaps you can share with the audience a little bit about since you have been in this role as head of energy, since you assume this very important role to transform Google and actually, frankly, the world on on the thinking uh, of using carbon-free energy anytime, anywhere, any location, and any services, perhaps uh, you can summarize a little bit about um, what keep you up at night, what might be the challenges, and perhaps specifically some of the amazing progress under your leadership you were able to accomplish. Yeah, happy to talk about that, Susanna. And, and I think it's helpful to give a little bit of context of, of just how we got here. Uh, when I started at Google in 2007, we made a pledge to uh, be a carbon neutral company. And, and that is to go out and buy carbon offsets to offset 
the electricity consumption and the emissions associated with that with our data centers. And at the time, that was really the the only tool available to us to to address that carbon footprint of our data center energy consumption. We also had a uh, we had a, a 1.7 megawatt solar installation on the rooftops at our headquarters. And at the time, it was the largest solar installation in the world, uh, which is pretty incredible to think about uh, now because we've come so far from then. Um, in 2012, we set a goal to match 100% of our annual electricity consumption with renewable energy purchases. And we actually started going directly to wind and solar developers and buying power directly from them. And I remember when we set that goal thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to be a decade or more before we can even think about achieving something like that. We actually achieved it in 2017, uh, you know, years ahead of schedule. And we've actually done it every year since. And so the, the next logical step, you know, after you're matching your annual consumption with direct purchases of renewable energy is like, okay, how do we do this in every hour of every day, everywhere? How do we do this when the, the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining? Um, and, and so that's what really led us to this 24-7 carbon-free energy commitment. And we also felt that the, the technology had come so far um, and that we've seen so much progress in the industry that we could actually make such a crazy commitment and, and actually have a, a plan for, for how we can achieve it. So, um, but it's still very ambitious. And if you look at our global portfolio, there's a lot of variation in how we're performing. There's some sites that have very high levels of the hours of the year that are carbon free. And then there are others that are very low. For example, our data center in Singapore, only 3% of the hours of the year are carbon free. So in terms of, you know, what's the biggest challenge that we face? I think it's in those tougher markets. Many of those markets are in um, Asia. Some of them are in the Southeast US where the grids are still very heavily um, dominated by you know, gas or fossil energy. How do we work to transform those grids? How do we work to uh, contract ourselves for clean energy sources? And frankly, how do we look even beyond wind and solar and battery storage and look for other types of technologies that can help get us to 24 seven. So, so I think that's the, uh, the biggest challenge that we face is really doing this everywhere and really in those markets where there's not a lot of carbon free energy that's readily available, you know, finding ways to solve for that. And, you know, that's, that's going to be a big challenge moving forward. Thank you, Michael. That's very succinctly described um, the scope and the boundary. Uh, I know my colleagues here, my two uptime punkers, uh, Paul and Tim, we're very curious about the global footprint of Google, especially how you have multiplied yourself in terms of your growth, actually during the pandemic. And according to your leadership that you know that I always have uh, interaction with, um, you guys are expecting um, even faster growth in a shorter period of time. Can you comment a little bit about um, your views in terms of head of energy relating to the scope one, two, and three, um, what it is specifically that you're primarily interested in and how may you even look at beyond uh, just the direct consumption? Um, just a little comment regarding what you think about the overall supply chain. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. And we do look at each of the three areas. Uh, Google doesn't have a very large scope one footprint. We don't have a lot of direct emissions. Uh, we do have some vehicles in our fleet. Uh, we do have diesel generators. 
that we have on on site. But overall, our scope one missions are 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 not very significant. But we are looking at how we can address those. And I'll give one recent recent example. Um, you you all may have seen that um, last December we announced that for our data center in Belgium. We're going to start phasing in the use of batteries for backup for that data center um, in a way that could actually augment and replace diesel generator backups. And not only are we going to use the batteries for our own backup, we're going to use the batteries to help the grid operator optimize and balance the grid in, uh, in, that, in that overall electricity balancing authority. So, so that's just an example of how we're thinking about tackling our scope one emissions. Um, our scope two emissions are our electricity consumption. That's historically been the largest share of Google's carbon footprint. And, uh, you know, we've set this 24-7 carbon-free energy goal. And I'm happy to talk a lot more about all the things that we're doing to address that footprint. And, and then for scope three, you know, which is an area that's getting um, more and more attention as it should, um, we're also looking at how can we move the needle there. And um, when we announced our 24-7 carbon-free energy goal last fall for our data centers. Um, we also announced that we're gonna um, uh, try to catalyze about five gigawatts of new renewable energy investment in key manufacturing regions around the world, because we really want to transform the entire ecosystem, You know, not just our scope two, but also our scope three as well. And that really means working with suppliers to put in place uh, measurement and efficiency plans, and then also starting to look at the grids of where they operate and how can we green those grids as well. So uh, we really are uh, taking an approach where we address um, all three of these areas. Uh, you know, again, scope two is a little bit further along because that has historically been our greatest impact, uh, but we do think it's important to try and tackle um, all three. Thank you, Michael. Sounds like that we may have a sequel, Tim. From this, I, uh, I, I love uh, your questions and uh, how, how you also how you summed this up, Michael, with the three different scopes. Um, yeah, definitely up for a sequel <laughs> in scope free special edition one, one day. I'm sure it will come faster um, than we think, um, considering Google speed in these matters. Um, so the paper that came, came out last fall, um, 24 7. Um, what was the title again? I believe it was in September 24-7 by 2013, realizing a carbon-free future, I think, um, gave some insights on challenges and um, opportunities ahead. So, Michael, um, I guess what, what is interesting to me, and I think also to you as a former White House um, uh, staff member, uh, interesting enough the policy question is also mentioned in that paper on how you guys achieve to transform local markets um, in southeast asia that made it easier to purchase green power would you like to elaborate on that a little bit on how your guys are involved with policy and uh, and how you transform that yeah absolutely tim and uh and first of all thanks for for reading our white paper i we we realize that they don't read like a romance or an adventure novel it's uh, actually very it's actually very well written in my opinion because it's um yeah it's a very non-technical language which uh, yeah. i gratefully ma yeah, made it very gratefully understandable for yeah. me. <laughs> well, that's great to hear and and you know we, we we try to be as transparent as we can with the the approaches that we're take that we take and so 
we, we do release white papers on a pretty regular basis that try to explain our thinking and our evolution, you know, and I think one of the things that's so exciting about being in this space is that you're in a constant state of motion. Things are never static. And so we're, 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 we want to constantly update um, our users and the public and others in industry about how our thinking is evolving and what we're learning and where we're failing. And, and so we, um, we do try to release these papers as much as possible to sort of share those learnings. But, you know, you really hit the nail on the, pe on the head. Uh, you know, policy is, uh, is so important to really driving transformation in the way that we use energy. And, you know, that's why you actually see a lot of people um, who have a background and who focus their careers on energy um, have at one point or another intersected with the policy space because energy is a very highly uh, regulated area around the world and it helps to have that sort of um, knowledge and expertise. And so in terms of how we think we're actually going to achieve 24-7 for Google, we think policy is incredibly important, not only for us, but for getting all of the electricity grids around the world to carbon free. And, um, you know, there's a few principles uh, that, you know, we can abide by in thinking about how we do that. You know, we should be investing in the next generation of technologies. Uh, you know, wind and solar and storage have really benefited from, you know, many years of government and support and incentives that help these technologies get to scale. And we need to make sure that we're continuing to do that for uh, new technologies that can also help us get to carbon free as fast as possible. We need to be looking at how we structure the electricity markets. And, you know, I think uh, what happened recently in Texas is a good example. You know, the more that you're managing the electricity systems on regional grids, whether they're multi-state grids or multinational grids, it makes it easier to deal with these kinds of disruptions if you're managing the the electricity over a larger area and you're dealing with the variability of, for, for example, wind and solar over a larger area. So, you know, investing in new technologies, regionalizing the electricity grids, um, and then lastly, empowering energy users. There are a lot of uh, users like us out there now who want to get to carbon free as fast as possible, even faster than um, policymakers may want. And so, you know, giving all consumers a path to directly procure renewable or clean energy and to get there as fast as they uh, can is something that I think is also really helpful um, from the policy perspective. And I'll give one last shout out um, for those who are interested in policy. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's something that really involves a collective effort uh, from all stakeholders. You know, they don't call it public policy for nothing. And so it's real important to work with partners um, and work with policymakers to drive these changes forward. And we have helped to establish um, organizations that bring together like-minded companies to help to, to, do, to do that. And I'll mention two here that I think are relevant for this audience. The first one is called the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, which is a group that's based in the United States. And it includes companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and Google, but also companies like Walmart and Disney and Johnson and Johnson, and we've all come together to try to advance policy to help uh, companies who want to be clean energy powered get there faster. And then in Europe, we formed a similar organization called the Resource Platform with uh, companies like Heineken and IKEA and others to to do the same in Europe to really help. Uh, companies have greater access to clean energy to help Europe meet its ambitious clean energy goals. And we found that working in these organizations can really help accelerate progress and change. 
And I invite anyone who's listening who wants to get involved to uh, to try to get involved in one of these organizations. Or there's another organization called RE100, which works globally, uh, because I do think they're doing really terrific work. And I think that they're going to help us get to the carbon-free future faster. Excellent stuff. Um, yeah, so maybe one last question before I give back to Susanna. Um, it will be a large one. Sorry for that. Um, the the term the um, the way you embed data centers in local communities, but also in the let's say natural natural um, circumstances of of a location, whether there's wind or no wind or lots of solar power available. Um, I guess what Susanna and uh, I are really passionate about is this holistic approach that you put the data center where it could benefit people. Like, um, for example, we know about companies who use lobster farms, for example, as their mm -hmm. partners and uh, uh, grow plants on the on the on data center roofs uh, with heat waste reuse and all that kind of stuff. Are you involved in this? Uh, in, in, in such projects as well? Or um, how, how does it look on that side? Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, a lot of those kinds of opportunities. Obviously, a lot of factors go into where we site data centers. Uh, but, you know, I think actually one of the one of the more interesting opportunities that, you know, we're starting to see is, you know, how can you actually repurpose um, existing infrastructure, you know, and work within um, infrastructure that's that's already there. And I'll and I'll give you um, an example, and you know, and to to sort of tie it back to Alabama. And in Alabama, we have built a data center that's on the site of what had been a 60-year operating coal plant uh, that had been there uh, and and employed a lot of people in the region. It had a massive amounts of um, electricity infrastructure there, and the plant was going to be retired, and and uh, there were, it wasn't going to employ any more people. The site was really just going to be set aside. Uh, it had a lot of uh, coal ash ponds and other things that really made it not very usable. And we went to the utility and said, you know what, there's actually a lot of embedded infrastructure there that had been invested in over decades that we could repurpose and use for a data center. And so we constructed a data center on that site, took advantage of all that amazing electrical infrastructure that had been there. It's actually a very robust, strong node within that utility's electricity system because there was a power plant there sending power out to the entire region. And we've really repurposed a lot of that and built a data center on that site. And I think there's other opportunities like that out there where you can take a, um, a holistic approach towards a community and look at how to rebuild um, you know, old existing infrastructure or take advantage of other resources that are there. For example, our data center in Hamina, Finland uses uh, seawater to help with our cooling. And so I think those kinds of approaches make a lot of sense and you know certainly should be something that we're thinking about as we uh, move forward and the industry has a lot of growth ahead of it so i think there's a lot of these kinds of opportunities okay yeah so uh, from a prosumer perspective this is there any i mean i'm, I'm not asking for your long-term company strategy of course but any um any uh, reflection on how to become an energy producer as well as an energy consumer and uh, perhaps generate some revenue from that? Is this something you can talk about? Yeah, you know, I think we're always looking at those kinds of ideas as are a lot of other companies. Um, and, I, and I would say, you know, again, 
I think one recent example is uh, is the the battery installation that we've put out uh, that we've done in Belgium. Again, we um, we ended up doing twice the size of the battery that we needed for our own backup to be able to use that portion of the battery to help the grid operator balance the grid. And so when this is up and running and operational, that will be the plan. We'll we'll use that that backup capability to actually provide services and features for the grid operator. So it's it's not necessarily generating energy per se, but it's actually providing energy to the grid in a way that can help uh, balance the grid and deliver value, not only for us, but for everyone who's in that region. Cool, thank you very much, Michael, for, um, for, your, for your answers and pointing us towards um, these interesting insights and uh, organizations. So back to you, Susanna. Thank you, Tim, and excellent response, Michael. We really appreciate during this podcast you share you know, your candor in terms of what's really kind of going on behind the scenes uh, beyond you know, white paper and uh, presentation format. So, Michael, you are in charge of energy strategy. And one of the key things that I learned from my um, alma mater school, Stanford, is strategy is really oftentimes not about what you're going to do, but you really have the discipline to have a list of items that you're not going to do so you can actually focus on your execution on your strategy. So if you assume that that's actually the framework that we actually teach our graduate school of business, um, can you share with us your personal experience in terms of head of the energy strategy, all the long list of things that you need to do? Do you have a list of things that um, in order for your strategy to play out, what it is that you're not going to do? <laughs> that that's a great question, and I should say, Susanna, that um, having been at Google for 13 years, I have learned to never say never uh, with a company like Google because I think we're always, uh, you know, trying to innovate in as many different ways um, a, 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 as we can. So I think it's a, um, I, I think it's a great question. But I do think, to your point, you know, staying focused and staying focused on having a very clear goal of what you're trying to achieve and making sure you're not getting distracted from that. One, one area that we talk a lot about at Google in terms of what we're not going to do is we don't want to go into a market and pay such a ridiculous cost for um, clean energy that we pay so much more that no one will follow on behind us. We really try to lead the market in the direction and lead the market to a, to a place of scale. So we look for those opportunities where we can be the first mover by, by going in and doing a deal or doing a project. Um, you know, we, we can do it in a way that generates interest and brings on a lot of companies and others to follow on behind us. That, that's something that we feel is really important and ultimately magnifies the impact of what we're trying to achieve many, many, many times. But if we, if we, if we get too far out ahead um, and, and no one comes in behind us, then we're really not driving the sort of systematic change that we're hoping to drive. So one thing we are very cognizant of in terms of what we don't do is is we want to is, is not get so far out in front that we're just solving problems for Google, but not solving um, problems in a way that everyone else can come in um, and be part of the solution and come in behind us. So I think that's an example where sometimes we do say uh, no, even though we could potentially have um, an opportunity to do something. 
Thank you, Michael. Actually, my first podcast, uh, Paul and Tim, if you guys recall, it seems so long ago. But then again, every day seems the same to me during the pandemic lockdown. When I was sharing my experience, actually, uh, to earn my energy uh, fellow um, award at Stanford, um, Michael, what we did actually at Stanford is we decided that we are not going to use fossil fuel. And we basically set the goal line. And wow. And from then onward, um, we are very, very blessed uh, with a lot of donors and we have a good endowment fund. And instead of just multiplying the endowment fund, we basically use it to shut down the on-site uh, dirty generation. And we take a leap of faith. And, mm -hmm. and since then we have been rewarded uh, with an emission-free campus. And at the same time, we actually genuinely save uh, costs. So we were able to demonstrate a double bottom line. Um, so we are all about uh, following science and data. But I understand your question. I think it is wonderful that you are out there solving problem, not for yourself, it sounds like, but you're actually out there solving big problem using your skill and the talent and the ambition that you have to really move the industry forward. And to me, that is always inspiring talking to you. Um, my second question to you, we're actually coming up on time now, um, is perhaps uh, maybe you can quantify your success and you quantify the journey that you are taking. Uh, I too agree with you looking ahead. Um, we're definitely going to be, we all hope that we're going to be accomplishing what we did in the last decade uh, going forward without taking yet another decade. Um, can you share with us or more educate us on what metric that you use um, to quantify your own success or lessons that you learned that didn't we kind of work out in your strategy and your plan that you can pivot? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, being Google, we we're a very data driven company and we use a lot of, um, of, of, of metrics to evaluate uh, how we're going to do projects and uh, and and what our what our success is and how we measure that uh, and and I would actually encourage um, you know everyone to read our white papers where we share a lot of that knowledge and I'll make a, a plug for a a new a new white paper that we'll be releasing here very soon that's actually going to be a deep dive into our methodologies around 24 7 carbon free energy and how we've actually uh, tried to develop additionality criteria how we score projects how we make some uh, selections on how to do one project versus another and i think it'll be very educational for folks and we also obviously welcome comments and feedback on uh, on those metrics and in, in, in that data, but it's you know it's something that's like super important to us. One thing that I would like to see you know moving forward is that you know um, so much of the conversation in the climate space has been around carbon offsets and net zero commitments and those and those kinds of of um, approaches. I think we're at a point now, especially with electricity, where the technology has gotten so advanced and so cheap that you know, we can really start measuring literally hour by hour how much carbon-free energy are we all using. And we're not measuring in terms of offsets or, um, or other kinds of um, approaches that are you know, not really focused on actually using carbon-free electricity all the time everywhere. Um, I would like to see the, 
the the metrics really move into more of that direction. And, and what it means is is that not everybody's going to hit a hundred percent right away. I mean, again, we're we consider us hitting a hundred percent carbon free all the time everywhere to be, you know, arguably a moonshot and something that we're hoping and aiming to achieve by twenty thirty. But uh, but being comfortable with the fact that, you know what, we're all not 100% there, but let's really focus on measuring the real transformation and the transformation that we're all driving in the way we operate our systems. Um, I understand the importance of offsets, and I think that they serve a very important purpose, but let's not lose sight of finding ways to quantify the actual real carbon-free transformation that we're all trying to drive in the economy, because that's where we are. And the urgency of climate change really demands that, you know, like the, the time for, um, you know, net zero commitments is it's here and it's important, but the time for total transformation and how we actually live and work is also here. And I want to make sure that uh, we're all focusing on that as well, because we need to be moving much, much faster. I cannot agree with you more. So well said. Paul, I think I'm going to turn it back to you as the time is coming up. So you can then uh, have- I have one last very, exactly. very cheeky question. Um, <laughs> not, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to ask it. Um, I, so, I mean, it's great to see how companies are working together. I mean, this is remarkable to see, um, even though you guys are competing with a lot of others on a business level, but when it comes down to the planet, you guys all seem to- um, get joined together, hold hands, and try to solve the problem, which is really uh, remarkable. And um, thank you very much for doing that because, um, yeah, it's probably not easy to communicate with a lot of thousands of engineers around the globe. Um, what I wanted to ask um, more from an uptime punk perspective is, um, is there certain places where you feel like um, from a maybe government perspective, there's a lot of resistance coming um, in the, pro in the pro progress which companies are trying to do? Um, would you say that you would like to see more support, I don't know, from Central European governments or from Asian governments where you feel like, well, uh, we want to make a change, but we're just finding resistance constantly? Yeah, I know. It's a great question, Paul. And I think uh, one of the challenges that we're seeing is that I think that policymakers don't quite realize and understand just how radically far we've come, even in the last five to 10 years, to take it back to one of your first questions. You know, the technology has has come in such a long way, you know, not only on the power generation side, but how we manage demand and how sophisticated we can be in managing the demand and how we can structure electricity grids to um, really, you know, run carbon free. And I think um, the, the, that, that, the advancements that have happened haven't really uh, penetrated completely through to a lot of policymakers where they understand that, hey, these are amazing opportunities. These are incredible technological advances. And not only do they lead to a carbon free future, but they lead to a better future for people. You know, uh, electric vehicles have greater torque than internal combustion engines and in a lot of many cases drive better. Smart thermostats can optimize your home in a way that the older thermostats can't. And so a lot of these technologies are not only there to help solve climate change, they, they can actually make our make our lives better and they can also generate growth and opportunity for our economies. And I think that's incredibly exciting too. And so I think uh, I still see conversations where these things are seen as a trade-off or having to make a sacrifice in order to solve for climate. And I really think we've gotten to a point where we can do this in a way that lifts up everybody and that we sh that should be our focus. And I'd really like to see that break through more uh, with respect to the policy community so we can 
advance some of these policies, which will help us get to these solutions faster. You, you know what's funny? Back in September, um, just this one, back in September when, when Google <laughs> announced uh, it's now completely uh, carbon-free through, um, through offsetting, they even got the appraisal, appraisal from uh, Greenpeace. See, so it's it's a bit worrying to see that the policy isn't really uh, isn't really taking up that much. Uh, maybe our next podcast should be a, about how to get them on board. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I'm happy to spend that time. We 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 actually spend quite a bit of time and effort on policy at Google. We have a global policy team. We've worked to advance policies in Asia and Europe and the U.S. Uh, and and we see it as something that's incredibly important. So um, I will. Uh, absolutely be more than happy to come back anytime and, and talk policy. Thank you, Michael. And um, the last word is always of our guests. So this is your moment to leave um, a message for the future generations to come. Um, so the stage is all yours. I, I would just say that there's never been more opportunity than there is now. There's never been more opportunity to solve for some of the big world problems that we're facing, like climate change and uh, just encourage everyone to get involved and, and look for uh, opportunities that excite, uh, excite you the most. I, I always tell people, and I tell people at Google, you know, find your bliss, find the, the area that, get, that excites you the most, and you'll go much, much further. And so, um, I, again, I think, you know, having been in this space now for quite some time, um, this, is, uh, this is a super exciting time. And, you know, that you can see the, 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 the horizon where we're going to get to this point where we're going to run this the global economy on a, car a carbon free. And I think that's incredibly exciting and encourage everybody to get involved with that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Everybody. Well, Tim, it's a great example to see how Michael emphasized on the fact that um, everybody joins hands. And I think it's something really great to see that um, even all the big companies such as Google come together with all the other companies and try to solve a problem hand in hand. Um, but what was your what was your learnings out of this podcast, you would say? Um, I think it's, um, it's, it's two learnings, actually. So one is that uh, I think very interestingly, he said, we, we as Google, we don't want to do things um, that we know that nobody will follow behind. So I take that as a key takeaway, um, signifying that they really want to be a pull in the market, in the industry, in society. Um, so it's very uh, interesting to observe that. Um, on the other hand, what I really also think is important is uh, Michael's emphasis on using pre-existing conditions be it nature, be it geographic uh, conditions, be it political, be it social um, conditions, and to adapt to them, rather than to wanting, rather than wanting to reinvent the wheel, and you know, model everything according to 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 your to your yeah to your to your ideas, but just work with what's there already. And uh, I guess that's the most sustainable approach for the future. You just use what's there. And um, rather than just go there and extract what you can and then leave and go somewhere else. And uh, that's that's really something that we all need to, yeah, rethink in that matter. 
And uh, whether you like Google or not, I think uh, you need to recognize that that they at least do some tremendous effort in that regard. And uh, that's my second key takeaway. Yeah, I, I think I think um, people are too quick to judge a book by its cover. And um, well, I mean, when, it comes, when it comes to big hyperscale, no, because when it comes to big hyperscale, a lot of people, I mean, Tim, a lot of people come on our podcast and moan about the hyperscalers. That's true. But, 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 but you know what? It just shows you that people like Michael, I mean, they put so much hard work into this true. and they actually achieve it. And you know what? If the big guys can do it, then the smaller guys can even do it better because definitely have, and green, green, green mountain is the best example green mountain is the best example and, and um, so um I, I would love to see uh google's lobster farm <laughs> <laughs> someday yeah. as well no the perhaps ABC not let, let, farm, let, yeah. let the lobster farm to green mountains uh to green mountain that that'd be great yeah i, I know yeah. i know where you're coming from i guess it's um uh, I think there's a big. I, I think what they have is a big uh, social responsibility, and I'm true. very happy. I'm very delighted to see that they're fulfilling that. Um, so true. And, I would, and we I would will say follow them closely say, in the future. We will follow them closely, and um, like we said already, it's going to be a sequel. So we're going to be back on scope three with Michael once they're going through that one. Yes, scope free. Um, so um, yeah, um, it's glad to have had them on the Uptown Punks, and it was a great honor and pleasure for us. So if you guys want to hear more. Um, please feel free to subscribe um, if you feel like we could add some more content or if you're somebody out there that thinks you have a nice story to add here, then please feel free to reach out to me and Tim, um, www.uptimepunks.com or you can find us on LinkedIn, Uptime Punks Official, or yeah, you can reach out to me and Tim. We're quite um, quite available all the time, I would say, unless we're recording some other nonsense episodes. Yeah, So please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Music, Google Podcast, and on Spotify. And that's it. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Bye. Stay safe. Cheers. Bye.